Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, and the word of the sovereign Lord reads, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointments and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. This is the word of the Lord. The late theologian A.W. Tozer once wrote, What then are we to do about our problems? We must learn to live with them until such a time as God delivers us from them. We must pray for grace to endure them without murmuring. Problems patiently endured will work for our spiritual perfecting. They harm us only when we resist them or endure them unwillingly. So waiting on God. That's what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks is waiting on God, which is hard for us, right? Because we don't want to wait. We are an impatient bunch. I mean, if there's anything that we hate to do, we, we all hate to wait. We don't want to wait on hold. We, we don't want to wait more than two minutes in the drive-thru at Taco Bell for that Burrito Supreme. We don't want to wait for, the, for, for traffic. We don't want to wait in those ridiculously long lines at Walmart right now. We don't want to wait in that line to get inside of Costco. We don't want to wait. And by the way, it's always been this way. I don't know if you realize that or not. It's always been this way. When you were young, you didn't want to wait for Christmas. And you didn't want to wait until you were 16 years old to be able to drive. And many of us didn't want to wait until we were 21 years old to drink alcohol. And in fact, a lot of us didn't. Right? And it's everyone. Everybody hates to wait. Kids don't want to wait, you know. They, they can't wait until they're grown up so they don't have to take a nap. And then grown ups can't wait to go home so they can take a nap. We don't want to wait for the tax refund. We don't want to wait for that stimulus check. We don't want to wait to buy the new car. We don't want to wait to buy that outfit because the credit card in our pocket says we can have it today and pay it tomorrow. We don't want to wait for anything at all, including God. Because let's just be honest. When we pray, right, we want God to move right now. When we pray, we want God to act right now. When we pray for, for deliverance, we want him to solve our problems now. We don't want to wait. We don't want to have to be patient. But in spite of that, and what makes it even more complicated, is the fact that we were created by God to have to wait. We have to wait in our lives. We were designed that way for lots of things. It's just how we were created. But most importantly, we were created to wait on God himself. We were waited... We, we, we were designed to wait for him. But not, but not only that. Not only do we have to wait, but God is our creator. He created everything that exists. Everything. Right? And because of that, he is everything that we're not. He's everything that we need. That's the reality right now that we need to come to terms with. That we were created in such a way that we need God and we need to wait for God. And, and the first week we spent some time talking about, you know, the reason why. Why do we have to wait on God? Right? Suffice it to say, we need to wait on God. The reason why is because God is completely sovereign and you are not. God is all good. And I hate to break it to you, but you are not. And he works. He's all knowing. And you are not. <laughs> and he works all things out for your best interest. And you don't always do so. 
We learned that God is all-sufficient and we are insufficient. We learned that God is perfect and we are imperfect. That God is complete, we are incomplete. God is everything that we are not. God is everything that we need, which means we desperately need God. And that means we are simply designed by him to wait upon him. Because we're wholly dependent upon him. And then last week we moved from from why we need to wait on God. And we began to talk about how to wait on God. And we began with waiting on God when life changes. Because if there's a constant in life is the fact that everything changes. Everything changes. Just look around. I mean, I'm not even just talking about what's happening with COVID-19, just in your own lives. But even with that, everything has changed. Right? And, and the reality is, is, is all of these things change and will continue to change. And all of these changes will have unforeseeable and foreseeable consequences, regardless of whether the change is good or bad. And so it is especially important that we wait on God when life changes. But then today we're going to talk about, change, about waiting on God when life is hard. Because if there's another constant in the world, if, there's, if there is truth that the, of, the, of anything, as certain as, as, as change will happen in our lives is the fact that we will all, every one of us, face difficulties and painful times in our lives. All of us has, have been through and will continue to go through times of deep, unbearable sorrow, times of agonizing difficulty. We've all lost loved ones. We've all been affected by cancer in one way or another. We've all experienced setbacks. We've all you know, known what it means to be in financial stress. We all know what it's like to have our hearts broken. We all know what it's like to have someone that we trust betray us. On the other hand, we all also know what it's like to betray somebody that we love. We know what it's like to have failed miserably at something. We know what it's like to have done things that we deeply regret. We have endured incredible difficulty in our lives, and it, and it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're young or old, whether you're married or single, whether you have a lot of money or you are just barely rubbing two nickels together, we have all, every one of us, endured times of suffering. And so, by the way, if there's a reason for you to be compassionate to your neighbor is the fact that you know what it's like to go through hard times and they have their share. We've all been there and the truth is we're going to all be there if you're not there already, given the circumstances. Because I know some of you are right now in this moment in the middle of a trial because of everything that's going on and the other things in your life that are going on. I've actually heard one somebody say that either you're headed to a hard place in your life right now or you've just come out of a hard place in your life or you're fixing to go into a hard place in your, in your life. All of us experience painful times. And I would say as clearly as I can, it's in those times many for us, many of us struggle to wait for God. It's hard for us in those times to wait on God. Because it's in those times, right, when, when, when you're really being tested emotionally, maybe even physically, that we get, we get frustrated with the things that are not changing. We get frustrated and upset and we wonder, where, where's God and what is he doing, right? It's in those times, we, we wonder, is, is God even there? I mean, we will ask the question, where are you, God? And sometimes we even ask other questions like, why me, Lord? Why this situation? Why do I have to do this? Why do I have to endure this? And then we get, the, get to the real personal questions. Lord, are you punishing me? Have you abandoned me? Have I done something wrong? Will you not help me? Do you not see me in pain? These are the kind of questions that we wrestle with. And we, we find ourselves in those periods of life where we, they just don't make sense to us. Right? And, and it's that we ask the questions and we experience the deep pain and anguish. And it's when we wonder, right? And, and we, we go through devastating loss and hardship and suffering. God, where are you? Well, what's going on here? These are normal questions that we will ask when things go very wrong. And then we begin to wonder about our theology. We begin to wonder what this means for us in our understanding of who God is. I mean, if God is completely sovereign and I am completely dependent upon him, then he is at least allowing me to go through this. He's allowing me to suffer. He's allowed me 
to go through this. He's allowed these things to happen in my life, if not even the cause of them. What does that mean about God? Is he just being mean to me? Is he just taking out his personal wrath on me? Is God not as good as I thought he was? Is, is God not sovereign? Maybe he's really not in control. Maybe he's not. Maybe he's not all good. Maybe he's not all knowing. Maybe I just misunderstood. Maybe I just misread what I, what I read in the Bible. Maybe, maybe they were right. Maybe that theology doesn't really matter. Maybe I'm wrong completely about God. Maybe my understanding is all messed up. Maybe he doesn't even exist. Maybe he just doesn't even care. Maybe he cares about everybody else, just, just not me. I think we've all been there. We've all asked these kinds of questions. Where is God in our pain? Why does he make us wait? Why does he allow us or cause us to go through these times? If he's truly sovereign and good and all-knowing, and he works all things out for my good, then why do I have to suffer the way that I have to? Our theological understanding of God is absolutely challenged by pain. But let me, let me tell you, it is also times like this that those who build their theology on the prosperity gospel are in particularly bad trouble. Right? Because what happens when, in times like this when your theology says that you trust in Jesus and your life is just going to magically get better? Right? If you will just have enough faith, God will make you healthy, wealthy, and happy. What, what happens in, in the times of deep pain when you come to Christ so that he can help you live your best life now, but he won't prosper you? What happens when you pray and the cancer doesn't go away? What happens when, when, you, when you believe with all of your heart and your mom still dies? What happens when, when you're believing for a miracle to happen, but then you come to understand you're going to have to live with the pain for the rest of your natural life? What happens then? What happens to your faith when you're trusting Jesus to bring prosperity and he doesn't do it? Because let me just tell you, the Bible doesn't talk about a Jesus like that. It's nowhere to be found. In fact, I want you to see what Jesus promised. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. In this world, you will have trouble. And I want you to notice, he didn't say, in this world, you may have tribulation. And he didn't say that you could possibly have tribulation. He said, you will. It's a certainty. It's a foregone conclusion. It will happen. You will experience suffering hard times in this life. Suffering is a part of this life. Peter even says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange is happening to you. Peter is saying, don't be surprised when you suffer. Don't be surprised when things get hard, right? As if it's something that's, that, that you didn't expect. Suffering is a part of this life. Suffering is, is, is especially a part of the Christian life. Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Suffering and pain is simply part of the deal. So how do you reconcile the prosperity gospel against that? Well, the truth is you can't reconcile it. The Bible itself destroys the, the prosperity gospel. You just have to read it. But then how do we reconcile our understanding of God and his sovereignty when things get hard? Because either he's allowing our suffering to happen or he has ordained for it to happen. I want you to understand that. If God is sovereign and in control, then God allows our suffering to happen or he ordains it to happen. Because the truth is, if anything is outside of God's control, then he is not sovereign. And if he's not sovereign, then he's not God. So it must be within his control, which means either he allows it or ordains our suffering, which I admit at times is really hard to swallow. But hear me, we don't believe what we believe about God because of our feelings. We believe what we believe about God because of what the word of God actually tells us. And the Bible says that God is in control, that God is sovereign. The Bible tells us that we are completely, totally, 100% dependent upon him. The Bible tells us that we will suffer in this life, which leaves us then with the questions of why. 
right? Why, Lord? Why must we suffer? Why must we wait on the Lord when we suffer? And that right there, that's what we're going to talk about today. That's the thing that we're going to tackle, is how do you wait on God when life is hard? And we're going to look at, at the book of John, at a story I think is going to help for you to get your head wrapped around this, to answer this question. It's the story of Lazarus, and I think many of you probably are familiar with it. So turn with me to John chapter 11, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. And it reads, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped away, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Lazarus heard it, he said, I mean, excuse me, when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. One of the things that we need to understand, that we just need to come to terms with, we just need to settle in our hearts, we just need to just be okay with, we just need to just understand it's the truth. One of the things that we need to come to understand and come to terms with right up front is the fact that everything that God does, He does for His glory. I talked about this week during our devotion. He created the universe and everything in the universe for his glory. He sent Christ Jesus into the world to die on the cross for his glory. He rescued us and he saved us by his grace for his glory. And that is the theological truth. The theological truth is this. We are allowed to suffer and struggle in difficult times for God's Glory. Everything that God does, everything that God permits ultimately is for his glory. Look what Jesus says. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Lazarus' suffering, his illness, his pain is ordained, was, was ordained by God for a purpose. And that purpose was the glory of God. Please do not lose sight of that. God allowed it. He ordained it so that Jesus, God in the flesh, would be glorified. That's what it says. It's not a confusing text. It is very clear here, which, again, many of us will push back against something like this and say, that's just not right. That's unfair. That's unjust of God. Why would Lazarus have to suffer so Christ could be glorified? What kind of monster must God be If that is true, and we begin to think that this can't be right, because we can't reconcile a good God being glorified in a person's suffering, it doesn't make sense to us. It offends us. But there it is, right there in the text, right there in black and white on the page. The inerrant, inspired, infallible, sufficient word of God. It's clearly there. Lazarus is suffering for the glory of God. It is It is happening so that Christ can be glorified, which exposes the brutal truth beyond that. And the truth is that we have to grapple with, and the fact that, that, that we have to come to terms with is that God is in some way glorified in our suffering. God is glorified in our pain. And I know that that does not want to fit with inside the confines of your head. I know that emotionally we just want to take that and reject that out of hand. But that is where we are theologically. God is sovereign and in control over all things, which means everything happens by his will because nothing is outside of his control. And everything God does, he does for his glory, which means he allows you to suffer and he allows you to struggle and he allows you to go through the hard times you do. And even more, it means ultimately it's for your own good. Try that one on for size. Your suffering ultimately works for your own good. But most importantly, it's for the glory of God. God is glorified in our suffering. And and the sooner we come to terms with that, and the sooner we embrace that, the better prepared we're going to be to worship God when we wait for him in our pain. Because that's what we're called to do. We are called to worship God in our pain. Remember the book of Job? If you have any question about this truth, just think about Job. 
Job was a rich man that God had blessed because of his righteousness. And the devil comes to God and tells him, hey, Job is only righteous because you're blessing him. You take away his blessings. You let that guy suffer and he will curse you to your face. And so in a strange turn of events, God allowed Satan to inflict suffering upon Job. And make no mistake, God allowed it to happen because Satan has no authority more than God allows. And one day, Job lost everything. He lost all of his animals. He lost all of his wealth. He lost his children. He even lost his health. I mean, he, was, he had painful sores all over his whole body. And God allowed it to happen. And how does Job react to, to this happening? Well, in Job chapter 1, beginning verse 20, it says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He worshipped God. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. By the way, we sang that song this morning. That's where this comes from. This song comes from this text. It's not just a feel-good worship song, right? This song is theological. This song comes from this, this part of the Bible. And so when Job suffered catastrophic loss at the hands of Satan, which was allowed by God, right? he certainly grieved for sure, but he also worshipped the Lord in his pain. And in all this, it says in verse 22, and in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Because he knows the truth. In, in Job's suffering, he knew the truth that God is in control. He knew that God allowed this to happen. He, he knew, right? Look what it says. He goes, he gave and he took away. He knows the truth that God gave and God has taken away. And then he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Job worshipped him in his suffering. You see, Job worshipped in his suffering because he had a very clear and high understanding of who God is. Job had a deep theology of who God is. He knew that God was sovereign. He knew that God was all-powerful. He knew that, that God created all things. He also knew that God was all-knowing. And he knew that God would be glorified somehow, some way, in his suffering. And so he trusted God and worshipped him in his suffering. And let me tell you, if we understand who God is... If we really understand who he is, we will do the same thing. In fact, again, that's what we sing today. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. The reason why we sing this song is because it expresses the truth about God and about who we are. Right? And when we sing that song... Do we mean it? Do we mean the words that we're singing? Or, or is it just because it sounds good, right? Do we sing this because it sounds good to our ears and, and we like the rhythm and the melody? And, you know, Matt's really good at singing this song, right? Or do we believe what it says? See, when I was a new Christian, um, I went to a men's conference and uh, I was in one of those breakout sessions. I don't know if you've ever been to a conference where you have the main conference and then they break out in smaller rooms and everybody tries to get stuffed into where the most popular ones are. Well, I ended up in a, in a class um, where uh, somebody, a man was talking about family. In fact, I still have the book. Um, but his story that he told me, I don't even remember what the conference, that his, his keynotes were about, but I, all I remember is his story. And it was during his introduction where he told the story about his own life and the love of his life. He met her at a Bible college, and the two of them fell in love, and they got married, and they went into ministry together. They were like living the dream, two people serving the Lord. And then they had like three kids, and life was awesome. There were these two people working for Jesus, right? And their family was in love with God, and, and God was blessing them at every turn it seemed. I mean, they were, again, they were living this glorious you know, dream that Christian couples would hope to live. But then the diagnosis came. His wife had cancer, and it was a very aggressive form of cancer. 
But then with surgery and chemotherapy and radiation, there was a chance, a slim one, but a chance that she could overcome it. And so they chose that road, you know, they believing that, that God would work a miracle and heal her. And so they, can, they, you know, they continued on with, with their life, never doubting that she was just simply going to get better. But then, right, he was not prepared for the suffering his wife would endure during that time. The pain of surgery, the pain of the horrific effects of radiation, the endless nausea from chemotherapy. His wife suffered horribly, and she was not getting any better. In fact, it proved to be terminal. But one night he was trying to get some sleep, and he was awakened to hear his wife in the bathroom once again throwing up. And she sounded weak and sounded like she was in so much pain. In fact, he said she sounded like, like a wounded animal there in the bathroom floor. And in that moment of grief for his wife, he turned to God and asked, why? Why are we having to suffer like this? Where are you, God? Why are you doing this to us? Why are you allowing this? Can't you see how much we love you? Can't you see that we've dedicated our lives to you? Why are you doing this to her? Why are you doing this to me? And he says, there in the midst of his complaining to God, he said, I hear my wife in the bathroom saying something. He says, then I realize that she's praying. He goes, and I stopped and I listened carefully in her weak and pain-filled voice. She was praying to God and she was praying the words, Lord, if you can be glorified in this, then be glorified. Be glorified, Lord. How can she say something like that? How can she worship God in a moment like that? Because she understood who God is. She understood who she was in light of who God is. And she understood that there's more to the story, her story, and more to Lazarus' story as well. There was a point to this. There was a purpose for this. So Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick. And when it says that, 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 he, that it was for his glory and the glory of God. But I want you to notice what he says next. In verse 5 he says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that, that Jesus was, when Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. I'm, I'm going to read that again, okay? Now, he, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved them, okay? He was close to them. These were personal friends of Jesus. Like, he had great affection for them. He loved them. So, so, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed Two days longer where he was. That's not at all what I would have expected to happen here in the text. It's not at all what I would have expected. I would have expected that he loved them, so he ran all the way there. He loved them, and he, so he left that very minute. He jumped on the first donkey, and he was kicking that thing all the way to get there as fast as he could get there. But it says so, it says he loved them, so he didn't leave right away. He stayed two days more. I mean, if someone called you and told you that your friend or your loved one is in the hospital and they probably don't have long and they're really, really bad off, do you wait two more days to go see them? Or do you wait hours? No. You go. Why does Jesus make them wait? Right? It says that he loves them. It says he loves them so because he loves them he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. Jesus made them wait because he loves them. This is another truth that we just have to come to terms with. That God making us wait on him in our pain, he does so because he loves us. God allowing us to suffer for a period of time, he does so because he loves us. Now, I know that's another idea that just doesn't want to fit within the confines of your head, but it's right here in the text again. You will suffer and God will, will make you wait on him when things are hard because he loves you. 
And you're like, how does that even make any sense at all? Well, let me ask you a bigger question than that one. How does it make sense that a God who created a universe that's over 92 billion light years across the visible universe, that God cares about a speck like you who just openly rebels against him on a regular basis? Why would God, who is all-powerful and magnificent and holy, even care to know who you are? Every hair on your head is numbered, which is saying something for you, but not so much for me. God knows you personally and intimately. Have you ever thought to wonder why God would even care? The, The Trinity doesn't mystify me. Why God would care about someone like me, that mystifies me. You see, when it comes to questions like this, oftentimes what we're going to be left with is to appeal to what God said to Isaiah in in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. He said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The truth is God is bigger than your imagination. And you and I are not going to fully understand all of what God does and why he does and how he does this side of eternity. We're not going to be able to always answer the questions. We're, you know, because why? God is infinite and we're finite. We're not going to be able to fully grab a hold of the question why and be able to rationalize every one of those things. But there it is on the page, the truth, that there are times that in our pain, God makes us wait because he loves us, which means there's a reason for our pain. There is a reason for our suffering. There's a reason for the trials that we go through. God has something that he's doing with it. Remember, one of the verses you'll hear me repeat over and over again, Romans 8, 28. And we know, that word know means confidence, know, like I'm seeing it with my eyes. And we know that for those that, who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is where we go. We need to trust that, that God is doing what he's supposed to be doing. That he is sovereign, that he is in control, and everything that he does, he does for his glory, and he allows our suffering, right? And he makes us wait because he loves us, and all of these things work together for our good. That's the promise. Those of us who love God, he works all those things out according to his purposes for our good. That's what we know about God, that's what we know about the truth, and so we're called to. So, what are we called to do? (laughs) We are called to turn to God, to trust in Him, worship Him, and glorify Him in our pain. That's what we're to do. You see, it's it's really easy to follow God when things are good, right? It's really easy to, to get up in the morning and say, Amen, praise the Lord, when everything is going your way. But when things get hard, we really see, do we trust God? That's the litmus test, by the way. When things are hard, do you really trust God? Now, the story continues, and Jesus tells his disciples that they're going to Jerusalem, and Lazarus is no longer sick, but he's dead. And then Jesus says the craziest, most unexpected thing to them. In verse 14, it says, and Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. What? Lazarus not only suffered from his illness, but it killed him. He died. He suffered and died. And Jesus said, for your sake, I'm glad. I'm glad that he died. I'm glad I wasn't there. I'm glad that I didn't heal him. I'm glad I wasn't there to take away the pain. I'm glad that I wasn't there to keep his sisters from grieving. For your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. So that you may believe. So you have to understand what this means. Jesus is going to use Lazarus's and his sister's suffering not only to glorify himself, but he's going to use it for an even greater good. Jesus is going to use suffering in the death of Lazarus to achieve a much greater good, which which is the faith of his followers. You see, another thing that we have to come to terms with is that in our suffering, we don't always see the big picture. We don't always see all the ends. We don't see what God is doing. We can't see how God is working these things out. When we suffer, we think it's about us. But oftentimes, 
And almost always, it's so much more than that. When my mom was diagnosed with brain cancer, I prayed earnestly all the time that God would heal her. And my experience had been, I'd prayed for people and people got healed. You know, not everybody, but I mean, it was pretty consistent. I mean, you know, people would come together and pray for people. We've seen, I mean, you've seen it. If you're a Christian for any length of time, you've prayed somebody and you've seen God do incredible things. I prayed for my mom that she would be healed and he didn't heal her. She didn't get better. And I was like, why? But hours before she passed away, my mom wanted me to pray for her one more time. And my wife, Kim, asked, are you afraid? And she said, no. Because she knew exactly who her Savior was. And she knew exactly where she was going. Now, before my mom was diagnosed with cancer, my parents were actually resistant to having a relationship with Christ. Like they had grown up in a church where it was kind of abusive and they just walked away from their faith. They were not walking with God, but it was, it was her suffering Understand that. It was her suffering that actually drew her and also my dad into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's when I realized that God saving souls is much more important than my comfort. God saving souls is more important than your comfort. If God can save souls through your suffering, my friend, you are going to suffer. If God can save souls through your death, then you're going to die. That's why the prosperity gospel fails, because it does not see the true purpose in the plan of God. God's plan was not for you to live a life of comfort. God's plan was not for you to live a life without pain. God's plan was for you to be saved and for you to save others. That you'd be saved and God would save others through you. God's plan for your life is not for your life to be perfect. God's plan for your life is to be fruitful for his glory. God's plan is not so that you be rich in material things. His plan is for you to be rich in mercy and in grace. Your suffering always has a purpose. It's just we don't always see it. That's why we call it trust. We have to trust and worship and glorify God when things are hard, knowing that God is at work doing something with our pain. Look at verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, shall, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. Now, the thing that you have to understand about what's going on here is, is that Martha trusted Jesus and she believed firmly and fully that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God. But she didn't understand what he just said to her. She didn't get it. He told her that he would raise Lazarus and it went right over her head. She was like, I know you're going to raise him on the last day. She's believing in the resurrection. Right? Just not a personal resurrection. But she did not understand what Jesus was saying and that she, he was going to raise him that very day. In fact, she didn't understand it all. In fact, notice in verse 28 it says, when she had, when she had said this, she went to call and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. Please notice, she didn't say, Jesus is here and he's, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, so hurry up and get here so we can celebrate. No, that's not even on her mind. She said, he's calling for you. Which brings up a really important point. Oftentimes, I want you to understand, in your pain and suffering, if God was to explain it to you in the midst of your suffering, you probably still wouldn't understand. We probably wouldn't understand in the moment. Lots of things that happen in our lives, we have to have time and distance to get perspective to see what God is actually up to. Just like Martha 
He explained it to her, but she didn't understand. And oftentimes we would be just like that. Why? We ask God, why? When in reality, if he told us, we probably would just be lost. You see, in our suffering, it's not about understanding. It's about trusting in the one that we know we can trust. It's about trusting exactly what, what the way Martha did. She trusted that Jesus was the Messiah and that he would eventually raise Lazarus on that day. She trusted Jesus would work all things out eventually. And then in verse 29 it says, And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not come into the village but was still in a place where Martha had met him. And the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary saw, I mean, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Again, the words echoing of her sister when Jesus saw her weeping, it says, and when, and when he saw the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And in the shortest verse in the entire Bible, but probably one of the most profound, it says two words, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Now you have to understand the context here. Because it's not just like a little tear just ran down of his cheek. Okay? In the preceding phrase, it talks about him being deeply moved. The Greek there has the idea, it comes from, from, the, from, from the word that means for a horse to snort in, in, in aggravation or pain. Right? You've, it's, it's a loud, you know, audible sound. Jesus was physically, emotionally moved. He was deeply moved, it said, and troubled. The Greek conveys the idea that he had a physical reaction to what he saw. And the idea is that this is not a little tear that slips down his cheek. Jesus cried, is the idea. It says he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled and he cried. That is the picture. Now this is important for us to understand because God may allow or even ordain your suffering, and he may be glorified in your suffering, but he takes no pleasure in your suffering. That's one of the most important things that you need to understand. That's one of the most important things you need to hold on to when you are suffering. God does not take pleasure in your suffering. God is sovereign and in control, and nothing is outside of his will, but God does not at all feel happy or rejoice when you're suffering. In fact, God says to Ezekiel, I have no, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the, the Lord God, and not rather that he should return from his way and live. In other words, do I, you think that I actually, you know, like seeing wicked people die? And the answer is no, of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. I take no pleasure in that. I want you to think about this. What would glorify God more? than for a rebel against him to be punished? What would glorify God more for his justice to be done? What would glorify God more than his character to be vindicated because he actually upholds his law? But it says here, right here in the text, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He desires for them to live. God does not take pleasure in your pain. Understand that. He grieves over it. The God of the universe grieves over your pain. Jesus wept over it. And then look in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came from the tomb, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the count of the people standing around, that they would believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
The man who had died came out. His hands and feet were bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them that what Jesus had done. You see, God had used the, this tragedy and the suffering of Lazarus and the sisters in a way that glorified God and that worked out for the greatest possible good. People believed in Christ that day. People got saved that day because of their suffering. And that's what we want to hold on to when we suffer. That's what we need to hold on to when our life goes sideways, is the fact that God is sovereign. He works all things out. And he will not waste your suffering. He will not waste your hurt. Instead, he will work all things out for his glory, but the greatest good, including your own good. But more than that, there's one more thing I want you to notice about this story, and then we'll wrap up. It said that many Jews believed, but some went and told the Pharisees what he had did. And then it says, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council together. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs, and if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. But one of the, them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this out of his own accord, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad, so that from that day they made plans to put him to death. You see, not only did, did Lazarus' suffering and death bring glory to God, and not only did God use it for the greatest possible good, this event led to Christ's death. You see, when Jesus, before this happened, was a safe distance away from Jerusalem before it happened, and this event brought all of the wrong kind of attention to him. In fact, Jesus, when he decided to go to be with Lazarus, he sealed his own fate. He wrote his own death warrant because there was no escaping now. And so shortly after this, Instead of running and hiding, he embraced his own suffering, what was to come, and he rides triumphantly into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, like a conquering king. And then soon after that, he would be arrested, and he would be beaten beyond recognition, and he would be crucified, and he would suffer a slow, agonizing, painful death, a death that was ordained for him by his father. And just before he died, Jesus experienced what we experienced. He experienced the separation from the Father, something he had never known in all eternity past. And he cried out in agony with a broken heart, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, suffered and was forsaken by the Father and died on the cross because God ordained it. And God was glorified by it. And God used it for the greatest possible good. And he used it for your own personal good. Christ suffered and was forsaken on the cross so that we would never ever be forsaken in any part of our lives. Even when things are hard. God had promised to never leave you or forsake you no matter what happens in your lives. Even when he lovingly calls you to wait. Let me pray for you. Father, I, I see the beauty in this truth. I see the glory in this truth. I see the hope in this truth. But I still struggle at times with this truth. There's something in me, Lord, that just wants the answers. There's something in me, Lord, that wants to know what's happening. There's something in me that just wants to avoid pain altogether. Come on, it's pain. There's something in me that wants not to suffer. There's something in me that wants to run when things get hard. Yes, Lord. But in that, I do see 
the truth. And so I just pray, Lord God, as I suffer, as I will in times of my life, and as we all suffer in different times, that we would have the strength of heart by your grace to look heavenward, understanding that you are the one that's in control and that you're going to be glorified in our suffering, that you're going to make us wait in our suffering because you love us. Ultimately, it's what's best for us and that you're going to use it for for a greater good. And so, Father, I pray that this would be the cry of our heart, that, Lord, that we would be like Job, that we would look heavenward, that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, that we would worship you in the midst of the greatest possible suffering. Yes, let us glorify you when the sun is shining, but also, Lord, in the darkest possible moments, let us look heavenward and never doubt your love for us and your goodness to us, even when it seems like we don't understand what's happening. And so, Father, I pray for for this church family. I pray that you'd meet all of their individual needs, Lord. So many people have different needs. They have different places in their lives. Some of them are struggling with physical things. Some of them emotional things. Some of them are just battling spiritually, Lord God. I don't know what's going on with them. But I do know, Lord, you do and that you can help them. And I just pray, Father, that you would strengthen them as they wait on you and that you would heal them and make them whole and you would restore them. And I pray, Father, for this country, Lord, that you'd restore it as well. I pray for this community. I pray for those who are affected financially because of what's happening. I I pray for those who are affected emotionally as well. But, Father, in all these things, we trust you and know that you are sovereign, that you have a purpose for this. And we just pray, Lord God, with one voice, we shout with one voice, be glorified in our midst. Be glorified in our lives and be glorified in our suffering, Lord. We give you all the praise. We give you all the honor and we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. With that, you are loved and you were prayed for and you were dismissed. Grace and peace. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.